Welcome to episode 24 of the podcast History Does You. Today we'll be covering the battle at Omaha Beach and we featured an interview with Dr. John McManus. Before we get to that, I wanted to do some more background information on what was going on in the lead up to Omaha Beach and the invasion of France in general. And it's always interesting looking at the invasion of Normandy because it is pretty much the beginning of the end of the Second World War. But in the context of the wider conflict, there was already a lot going on. And I think that's always what's so interesting about the Second World War is there's so many theaters and there's so many battles and there's so many different things going on that you could spend years and years and years reading and researching about it and, you know, never really run out of material. I think that it's very, especially with the 75th anniversary coming up for a lot of different events, there's a lot of new scholarship coming out. There's been a lot of great research done, and I think that's probably going to continue as time goes on and as you know, a lot of veterans begin to leave us. I think there'll be sort of a, a concerted effort to try and preserve that. And I've always been particularly interested in the Battle of Normandy and the invasion in general. I've actually been to Normandy. I spent about two weeks there when I was 11 with my whole family, I convinced my whole family to divert Uh, In France, we spent like one day in Paris. You think if you go to France, you would spend it all in Paris. But no, we spent the majority of our time in Normandy. And it's just kind of French countryside. There are cool museums. There's a lot of historical remembrance. The beaches are beautiful. You know, the cemeteries are very powerful. I would say my favorite highlight of the trip was visiting Pointe du Hoc, where army rangers climbed up the cliffs. They actually still have the craters there when the Navy bombarded it on June 6th. They still have some of the bunkers there, and I think the memorials there. So when I had the opportunity to interview Dr. McManus about Omaha Beach, I was very interested and definitely wanted to take that opportunity. I actually collected sand from all the beaches and recently found them when I was cleaning out all my old stuff. So that was kind of something unique. I always wondered sort of where those went, but luckily we still have them. And I think it's a it's a good reminder. It's like, a, for me, it's a piece of history that I'm able to kind of keep close and remember. So I will stop talking and we'll get right into the interview. And I hope you enjoy. On today's episode, we welcome on Dr. John McManus. He is a Curator's Distinguished Professor of U.S. Military History at Missouri University of Science and Technology. In addition to dozens of local and national radio programs, he's appeared on CNN, Fox News, C-SPAN, The Military Channel, The Discovery Channel, The National Geographic Channel, Netflix, The Smithsonian Network, and The History Channel and PBS, among others. He's also served as historical advisor for the best-selling book and documentary, Salinger, the latter of which appeared nationwide in theaters and on PBS's American Master Series. Some of his other work includes Grunts, the American Infantry Combat Experience from World War II through Iraq, U.S. Military History for Dummies, and The Dead and Those About to Die, D-Day, the Big Red One at Omaha Beach. So welcome on. Thank you. And to begin, what is your favorite part of history to research and talk about? Why is it your favorite? And how did you become interested in the battle at Omaha Beach? Yeah, I think my favorite is definitely World War II. And it's my favorite class to teach, too. Specifically, the U.S. and World War II. Not just because I'm an American historian, but I think from a U.S. perspective, the, the country just changes forever as a result of World War II, no matter what we're talking about. You know, race, economics, regionalism, of course, military aspects and, and great power status, all those things are really dramatically affected by participation in World War II. So kind of drawn to that is what I think is a, a watershed in, uh, in American history, and I think in a larger sense, world history too, as a kind of sub 
text within that, especially interested in the soldier's experience, because the fighting in World War II was, was so massive, widespread, brutal. There were so many millions of Americans involved that I think it's an experience that we need to understand a little bit better if we can. So that, that has tended to animate a lot of my career is uh, to look at the soldiers and maybe as we understand the soldiers experience, we understand a little bit better about American history and some of the challenges we still face today. Uh, World War II was like this massive earthquake that still has these sort of aftershocks that continue today. And what are some of the challenges that you have encountered while researching history? Almost too many to count. The main challenge is you have to follow the sources, and the sources aren't always there. I mean, as I think you've seen by now, that uh, history follows the source material, the primary source material. And the main frustration, especially for me, is somebody who really sometimes gets into micro history about individual specific soldiers and what they were doing 75 plus years ago or whatever, is not always being able to understand the interpersonal dynamic because most everyone's gone. You know, so the only people who can really tell me what a guy was like, in a way, is is the people who served in the squad with him. And if they're not there, you can't know that. So you don't always know what's, it could be a little frustrating in that sense, of not being able to access quite as much information as you want. On the other hand, I think if we look at a larger perspective of what the challenges are, are faced by historians who study events hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years ago, you know, my little foibles as a World War II historian are pretty insignificant because it's still a pretty recent event. There is good source material. It's legible, easy to read when you're talking about records that are kept because they had typewriters by then. There's been so many, you know, firsthand accounts from veterans that we've chronicled over the years since the war. And even at the time, you know, you have the journalistic accounts. And of course, you know, you've got um, the papers of various power brokers all the way down to the, the ordinary private or a war worker or whatever, you know. So, I think that's a challenge. In fact, I would say for me, a lot of times, the bigger challenge is having almost too much material and figuring out what to do with it and what to use and not to use while still being able to convey, you know, whatever the story is as fairly as possible. That can be difficult, but it's a good problem to have. And to get into some questions about Omaha Beach, which we'll be talking about today, uh, to begin, how were the units involved in the landing Omaha Beach selected, specifically the Big Red one? Yeah, the people doing the selecting is primarily on the American side, Lieutenant General Omar Bradley, who was the first army commander, which all American ground units on, on D-Day would be subordinate. And his key subordinate was a guy named Major General Leonard G. G. Rowe, who commanded what was called Fifth Corps, which is the, the sort of main operational unit of all the, the troops who land at Omaha Beach. So, um, you know, they're looking around at their availability in order of battle by early 1944, and their options are kind of limited to get troops who have some combat experience, who have invasion experience. There aren't that many, you know? So at their disposal at that point in time is, of course, the 1st Infantry Division, which had already launched a couple invasions in the Mediterranean and had proven itself a really good unit in combat, albeit a handful off the line because of the soldiers love to drink and carouse and get in fights and all this kind of stuff. So they felt that they had to, to ask the 1st Division or Big Red One to lead yet another invasion because they wanted at least some people with some level of combat experience. But they knew they weren't going to be able to get that for all the units, and they weren't sure they wanted that, you know, because a lot of times when a, when a unit is brand new, sometimes it's at its peak in a weird sort of way in terms of enthusiasm and willingness to face danger and things like that. So 
They selected the 29th Infantry Division for Omaha Beach because it had been in England the longest, training up the longest for an amphibious invasion. Uh, So they thought that the combination of the parts of those two divisions, while under the control of General Hubner, who commanded the 1st Division on D-Day, would be a good and winning combination. And, And I think you know, they, they were right about that. The only other amphibious experience division-sized unit they could have even conceivably gotten at that point is the 9th Infantry Division, which had also fought in the Mediterranean, but it had just gotten to England. Uh, and so it would have been a big ask to just send them right in. And what training uh, did American soldiers undertake and how much time did they spend preparing for the landings? They spend months and months preparing for the landings, going through a lot of amphibious style training. And so like the really interesting way to look at this, I think, is to imagine our, our images from, from movies and sometimes from documentaries of soldiers in the landing craft. And it seems like to us all these years later, they're just randomly standing where they're standing and then they're just, all right, get off the boat and do whatever. No, they, they, all of this was very, very planned. Um, and would have been a big part of your training exactly where you were going to be on the landing craft. So in other words, like if you're a mortarman, you're not going to be leading the way off the landing craft. Your job is to, to follow on, set up your mortar and provide the fire support for the riflemen who have led the way. You know, and also there's leadership connotations. The commanding officer leads the way off the landing craft. His ranking sergeant is situated at the back of the landing craft as a sort of push man to make sure everybody gets off so that he's can, can have that kind of coercive leadership if need be. So you would have done a lot of training like that as to where you were going to go. And of course, you would have been heavily trained to get off the beach, move inland, flank around the Germans, use any weapon at your availability. There was a lot of ship to shore training to get you used to being aboard a ship and getting in your landing craft. One of the most one of the scariest things for a lot of D-Day veterans was just the transition of getting going from a troop ship and climbing down the rope ladder into a bobbing landing craft in rough pitching seas and all that. You know, I mean, if you make a one wrong move, you can plunge into the Atlantic with, you know, 70 pounds of equipment on you and you're done. You know, you're, you're not coming back from that. So there's a lot of that and getting you used to seasickness getting used to your weaponry. There's a lot of different weapons you may have, man- have to manipulate, getting you used to, to perhaps assuming more responsibility. Uh, so let's say I'm a squad leader, but it might be that the platoon sergeant is killed or wounded and then the platoon leader above him, and maybe I have to lead the platoon. So there's a lot of emphasis on that. What they don't, at least on the American side, emphasize enough is what's going to happen after you get ashore at Normandy and you're dealing with the hedgerows and all that, how you're going to overcome that. That's one sort of training oversight, if we'd even call it that. I don't know that maybe that's too strong of a word, but there's a lot more emphasis on amphibious invasion and getting ashore because they thought it'd be such a challenge. And how long were uh, the soldiers at sea before the invasion and how long did they spend from the transition between England and landing in France? Not very long, about a day or two, typically, uh, because what had happened, you know, I mean, for one thing, it's designed that way, the whole invasion concept, because they don't want people at sea for very long, because that'll give away the possibility of the invasion to the Germans. Plus, you don't have to go very far, just across the English Channel. I mean, it's not, it's a few hours and you're there to the French coast. So all that is designed to be a kind of a quick turnaround. Um, And of course, you'd also then had uh, the storms that come in. You know, where the originally D-Day was supposed to be June 5th, and they'd had to postpone it for a day. So you had people who were originally aboard ships, um, and then 
taken off the ships, you know, because of the storm and then loaded back on. So you have this mess. You had some people who did remain aboard the ships for a couple of days quite miserably as they're getting jostled around. What I think is interesting is that this is a, the way, the way Normandy's done is a real contrast with what happens with the uh, soldiers in many amphibious invasions in the Pacific, because there's instances where sometimes they're aboard ship for a month or so, if not more. And that's a pretty miserable experience for a lot of these guys. Uh, and a lot of them just couldn't wait to get ashore, no matter what was waiting for them. They just wanted land again. So at Normandy, you wouldn't have to worry about that. You know, like I said, you're aboard a ship maybe a day or two at the, the absolute most. And in some cases, it's about sometimes about, uh, you know, between six and, and 12 hours for some people who are, who are some of the last to, to go in. And what were the conditions in the English Channel on the day of the invasion? pretty choppy waters. Uh, you'd had those storms go through and, and uh, you know, Eisenhower decides to launch the invasion on June 6th because he knew there was a kind of window in a, in a larger storm system, uh, but he knew it wouldn't be a great weather. It was, it was misty, it was windy, it was cloudy, uh, and the English Channel is not a very nice body of water anyway. So the waters were fairly rough for what you're doing. And you got people who were, who were in many cases, going across the English Channel on pretty small craft uh, that are going to jostle you around. And the, the classic example, of course, is a landing craft infantry or LCI craft, which, uh, you know, is just lolling back and forth. You've got uh, landing ship tanks that are that are that way, too. You've got people on uh, even on like oversized Higgins boat style landing craft. And you can imagine just how miserable this experience is. Uh, one side of this that I think we tend to overlook a little bit is the minesweeper crews who are going in first, you know, for obvious reasons, to clear the, the channel of the mines. And, you know, those are generally small ships. And so you've got the stress of trying to find the mines in addition to this, this really difficult choppy waters, the winds that they're facing. For many of these crewmen, just, just absolutely miserable, the conditions they face aboard ship. Did U.S. commanders overestimate the effectiveness of the pre-landing bombardment by the Navy and the Air Force? I tend to think so. This doesn't make them unique. I think you see that on almost every amphibious landing that uh, the Allies launch in the course of the war. A tendency, almost in a way, because of the awesomeness of the firepower, to think, well, no one could survive this. you know. And, and um, what we find out is that you often can if you're dug in properly or fortified properly or, or, or if it's not that accurate. In the case of Normandy, they always knew that it was going to be less than ideal because you aren't going to be able to, to have a much of a, of a long pre-invasion bombardment because of the element of surprise. Um, you know, I mean, if you'd done it for days and days and days, well, the Germans then would have known that the invasion was coming at that spot. So, you know, you've got at Omaha Beach a 45-minute pre-invasion bombardment, which is nowhere near adequate. And you have the uh, uh, the heavy bombers, of course, who famously dropped their bombs too far inland. And I, I see that as an example of just asking some, them to do something they're not really capable of, of doing. You know, bombing in that tight window right with, with their own fleet nearby. And, you know, even if they do succeed, the beach is going to be so cratered and that's going to lead to some problems with vehicles and whatever else. So the pre-evasion bombardment, yes, is is overestimated in terms of how effective it's going to be. But it's not as if the Navy is useless on D-Day, quite the opposite. Once they begin to figure out where the targets are and how they can help with, with uh, more accurate fire, especially the destroyers. But uh, initially, just doesn't do a lot. The exception is at Utah Beach, 
where you have medium bombers flying about 10,000 feet or so, do have fairly good precision raids that does significant damage to, to many of the coastal defenses and some of the anti-aircraft positions. And what time did American soldiers begin to land at Omaha Beach, and did they immediately encounter problems trying to get off the beach? Oh, yeah. Big time problems from the beginning. Um, the uh, landings take place about 630 in the morning, roughly. And that was almost low tide. The absolute low tide was a little before that, but they needed daylight, too. So they felt they did. There were previous invasions in this war that were done in darkness, most notably North Africa. But it had led to chaotic problems with landing craft and whatever else. So they didn't want that at Normandy. And so 630 was basically when you were going to have enough sunlight. And the tide is pretty low, which meant that there's a lot of open beach, a lot of obstacles and whatever else, which makes you quite a target. And and the major problem is that the concept at Omaha Beach is to land way more targets than the Germans can absorb and to have a kind of combined arms force of tanks, engineers, infantry and, and others to just present the Germans all these targets, to saturate them with fire, and then to be able to start to eliminate some of the strong point positions to outflank the others uh, and begin getting off the beach quickly. But the problem was they don't land perfectly synchronized. The tides are screwy. The mist is confusing. The clouds, uh, the fear, you know, they land piecemeal. And so it's like the Germans have one target here they can focus on and mash them up. And then 10 minutes later, another one comes in, they can focus on them. So they land piecemeal, many of them in the worst kill zones. And so that's why Omaha Beach ends up during those initial hours is just so deadly to those guys coming in. So if you're in the first wave, you might come ashore anywhere between, say, 6.30 or so to about 7.15, when you were all supposed to come in exactly at, at 6.30. So it's pretty screwed up in that sense. And was there any real cover on the beach or were soldiers mostly exposed? There's cover, but it's problematic. I mean, there's always dips and swales and there's places you can go where this machine gun can't get you and this rifle can't or this 50 millimeter piece or whatever. But the main cover you would have looked for, unfortunately, was the the obstacles. Uh, but that's very problematic because obviously the Germans know precisely where they are and some of them were mined and of course they're in the kill zones anyway. And your own guys, the gap assault teams, the combined uh, Army, Navy engineers are tasked with eliminating those obstacles and creating gaps. So they're trying to wire them up with explosives. And, and you know, the longer you stay there taking cover behind those obstacles, the, the greater chance the Germans are going to zero in on you eventually. So uh, the key is just to get moving it off. But obviously, that's very perilous, too. So you have some people who are going to try and just kind of hunker down at the waterline. And you'll notice that in some of the pictures, some of the, we don't really have like first wave pictures right at that moment, but there's, you know, the the minutes and hours after still conveys a lot of that sense. And you'll notice guys sort of at the waterline, but that's not a real good plan either because the tides are coming in very quickly, you know, better than a foot every 10 minutes or so. Um, so eventually that water is going to engulf you. And, you know, and besides too, you're still a target at the waterline. Now, some of the soldiers are going to, at Omaha Beach, are going to start, on the, the big red one side especially, are going to start to move into what's called the shingle bank. And it's like this raised embankment of very smooth stones um, that the Germans had left in place. And so again, there's the illusion of safety 
you can't really see them and they don't seem to be able to see you, but of course they know where all that is and they can drop mortar shells and artillery shells in on you. Uh, and the, the stones multiply the fragmentation effect. So it's really quite deadly. On the 29th side, you have a, a kind of a partial seawall, which creates again, that same illusion, but it's, it's nowhere near safe. So it's not as if you have no cover, but anything you've got at Omaha beach is going to present you with problems. And were any tanks able to land to provide support or did the rough seas prevent that? You know, the tanks were a big part of the plan because they, they figured, okay, the infantry is going to need a lot of fire support. We'll have the tanks come in and they'll blast, you know, the famous pillboxes we always think of in relation to Omaha Beach and, and all that stuff. Okay, well, on the 29th side, most of the tanks do get in. The most famous tanks, of course, are the duplex drive or amphibious tanks that the Allies had invented. But it, only about a third or, the, or so of the, the tanks earmarked for Omaha Beach were duplex drive tanks. The, the 29th Division side, you have the decision there by the naval commander, uh, who understands a lot about the, the currents and, and uh, the choppy seas and understands that those tanks aren't going to be able to swim because they were too sensitive. You just you needed fairly calm waters for those things to make it in as far as they were supposed to go. So he decides, keep on the landing craft, we'll get them in that way. So most of them do land, though they're vulnerable after they land. The big red one side, it was an army officer named Captain Thornton, who decides, you know what, I've been trained for this, and so I think that I have to launch my tanks this way and send them in to swim. And unfortunately, it's the wrong call. 27 out of 32 sink, with an average of one crewman loss per tank. Three get in because the landing craft door would not come down. So ironically enough, they, they go all the way into the beach and they land. And then two did swim in successfully. I should also point out too, though, that again, the majority of tanks were designed to go in on landing craft and they were called like uh, wader tanks. So that you'll notice they have these kind of uh, almost like ventilation contraptions on the back in a way. And uh, so they were designed to, to make it in like in, 10 feet of water or so and their engines would not peter out and they could eventually go in on, on the beach. So you had a lot of them land and contribute to what happens at Omaha Beach. The problem for you as a tanker at Omaha Beach is, of course, the tides and mobility. You know, you can't move around that much because there's so many soldiers, friendly soldiers, you could be running over, there's obstacles, but you need that mobility to survive too. Because otherwise the Germans are going to fixate on you and pinpoint you and blast you. And that happens to a lot of the, the tanks. So, you know, Omaha Beach is a real dilemma for the tankers. And the, the, the loss rates are very high among the, the tanks, whether they are DD tanks or whether they're tanks coming in aboard, you know, waiter tanks on the landing craft. The Americans, there's a lot of tanks at Omaha Beach. And in what sector of Omaha Beach was there the most resistance? What's called the dog green sector. Uh, which is right over by the, the Veerville exit. I think it's WN72 or 3. I don't recall the exact number, but it's, it's of course, famously portrayed in Saving Private Ryan. Not fully accurately portrayed, but in terms of the intensity of the fighting and the deadliness, I think, yeah, they, they certainly get that right. But not all the little details are exactly on. But that was where the 1st Battalion of the 116th Infantry, the 29th Division, comes in on the first wave and they just get raked over because they're in a kill zone and they're landing piecemeal. The the equivalent in the big red one zone is what's called the easy red sector. And it's right under what's called WN62 or the Colville draw. And what happens here, you have two companies of infantry that have been landed piecemeal in the exact deadliest spot. They were not 
meant to land there. They were meant to land a little farther west in a, a kind of a dead spot in the German defenses. Instead, they land right under the snouts of some of the most, uh, some of the deadliest defenses the Germans had in all of Omaha Beach, what's called WN-62, especially the machine guns that have these incredible fields of fire that's just destroying people. But uh, really the deadliest weapon the Germans have here and um, most everyone in Omaha Beach is inland artillery because their observers were still, in spite of the bombardment, in communication with the inland batteries. So like in the Big Red 1 sector, you have 24 different 105 millimeter pieces that are somewhere inland that are just saturating the beach with fire because everything's pre-planned. And so that's inflicting a lot of the casualties too. And how did American soldiers overcome this? Was it simply by sheer weight of men and force? They definitely have advantages on numbers and a lot of firepower on their side, of course. Uh, but really, the main way is the initial groups that start to get off the beach, maybe through the dead spots in the German defenses and start to move around behind them or whatever. And of course, most famously is the, the boat section led by Lieutenant John Spaulding and his uh, incredible second-in-command, Tech Sergeant Phil Strasick. They're the only ones in their company who land in the right spot which is like right in the middle of Easy Red, in a dead spot on the German defenses. And it's not easy, but it, it allows them to get inland and to, to get beyond the shingle bank, to blow holes in the, in the barbed wire with Bangalore torpedoes, similar to what you would have seen in Private Ryan, to start to move up the bluffs in places the Germans couldn't see them or, or, or shoot them. And so they, they wreaked havoc on the Germans. And I would I often say they and other groups like them that followed on within a half an hour, an hour, various spots of Omaha Beach are like knives in the vitals probing around at the Germans. And so the more this happens, the more it diminishes the deadliness of the German defenses within about two to three hours of the initial landings. And so the more that follow on people are going to be in a better position to get off that beach. So I think it's a combination. The numbers certainly help, but you needed very courageous people and sometimes lucky people to get to the right spots and start to overwhelm the Germans. And were higher ranking soldiers able to take control of the situation on the beach or was it pretty much chaos throughout the day? It's pretty chaotic. Omaha Beach is really a, kind of a sergeant's fight and a lieutenant's fight. You know, it's, it's a junior leader's fight with some exceptions. Uh, there are a few senior leaders who are there and have a major impact. Most famously, of course, Brigadier General uh, Norman Dutch Coda, the second in command of the 29th Division, who's ashore fairly early on and starts to lead a key group that moves up uh, at Dog Green off the, the exit there and uh, blows a hole in the seawall and starts to get some of the first vehicles off the beach and, and whatnot. And the, the big red one side, I think Colonel George Taylor is the classic example. Of course, he's the one who said only two kinds of people are going to be on this beach, the dead and those who are going to die. Now get off the beach. And I think his contribution, he comes in about a little less than two hours after H hour. And his contribution is that he gets a lot of people motivated to get up and get off the beach rather than lie there on the shingle bank or behind the obstacles or circulate around or do whatever, which means they're less vulnerable now. And now once they're off Omaha beach, they're hunters. The other thing too is that they're reinforcing some of those earlier groups that could have become quite vulnerable if they were not reinforced. Taylor certainly has an impact, as does Brigadier General Willard Wyman, the second in command of the Big Red One. He's also ashore fairly early on and, and helping organize. But overall, I'd say it's a pretty chaotic fight. 
commander of the big red one clarence huebner is like a caged tiger in the course of the day he wants to get ashore but they're like things are so messed up there that you're going to be out of communication everything's going to be more chaotic it's only going to make things worse so they had to almost hold him down <laughs> to keep him aboard ship and he gets ashore finally about you know about six o'clock at night something like that and you know most of the worst of it had passed by then his contribution i think was in the preparation of these guys so much as you could ever be for this fight more so than the actual on-site leadership and was there ever any consideration of attempting to evacuate the beach yeah bradley considers this for a while he's aboard uss augusta and so he's having to monitor a lot of things omaha beach utah beach the airborne landings in support of utah beach all this stuff and so he's getting very fragmentary reports and it's it's difficult for him to know really what's going on he just knows that it seems as if the first waves have been completely destroyed or pinned down and it seems as if the the opposition that they found at omaha beach is just overwhelming but he knows he doesn't have all that really good of information so he sends a couple of his staff officers ashore to omaha beach in the course of the day to fact find and gather information and come back and advise him further so he had considered just in his mind, the possibility that he might have to evacuate Omaha Beach, but he hadn't really made plans for that or anything, or how would you really even do that, you know? So by the time these staff officers get to him in the early afternoon, they're like, well, it's been bad, but it's getting better, and, you know, we think it's salvageable. And so Bradley then discards that idea of evacuating. Was the beach fully secure by the end of the first day, or were there still sectors where there was resistance? I guess I'd stop short of saying it's fully secure, but, uh, you know, certainly the, the Americans have won and they're going to get whatever matters out of Omaha Beach at that point. You've got wayward Germans around who have been kind of pinballed back and forth between different American units in the course of the day. There really isn't a front line that night. It's more like uh, perimeters that are held by the Americans primarily and then the Germans trying to get away and patrolling and bumping into American patrols or those little fortified perimeters or whatever. So you still have tons of mines. That's kind of the number one way you're going to get hurt in Omaha Beach in the days after D-Day is tripping the mines that are, that are still there that you hadn't seen. But it's still under artillery fire. And that's a problem too. You know, you have to be careful about that. But I, I would say by midday to mid-afternoon, the Americans have Omaha Beach, but it's not completely secure. And to get into some listener questions, the first listener question is, were there any African-American soldiers that landed at Omaha Beach? There were. It was a barrage balloon unit called the 320th Barrage Balloon Battalion. And so their job, and this is kind of like unique to World War II, their job is to protect ships and landing craft from airstrikes. So the way they would do this, you'd have these steel cables hooked up to this inflatable balloon, a really large balloon, depending upon the size of the ship. And that would make it very difficult for an enemy fighter to really strafe um, a ship, and it, or it might buy some time, slow down the, the fighter and help the anti-aircraft crews or whatever. So they're not there with the first waves or whatever, but they are there later in the day concentrating on that part of the job. And of course, any unit too, regardless of what they're doing, whether they're engineers, whether they're barrage balloon people, infantry, whatever, they've got medics with them too. And so you've got African-American medics who are helping treat the many wounded who have you know, been hit in the, in the course of the day, including their own, but primarily from other units. 
and facing, you know, certainly the same dangers we just discussed, the mines, the artillery fire, a little bit of mortar fire too. And of course, they're going to have a job as the days go on with dealing with generally German uh, night raids. Germans weren't going to send too many planes over during the day when you have this massive fleet and you've got tremendous air cover and all this. They would they pick their spots at night and try and do some damage to the fleet there. So, uh, you know, if you're one of the, the uh, barrage balloon guys, that's probably going to be your world is dealing with those uh, air raids that are coming in and making sure that your ship is secure and that the barrage balloon <laughs> remains in place. And, it, you know, it's, it's very stressful. It really is. Um, you also have some quartermasters too, quartermaster and trucking units that that have uh, uh, brought some of the freight over as well. I mean, you're probably aware that profound irony in World War II, the U.S. is fighting against these homicidally racist regimes, but it's doing it with um, armed forces segregated on the basis of race. African-Americans are largely held out of combat on the ridiculous idea that they won't fight or be good combat soldiers. If you still believe that in the 1940s, you didn't know anything about American military history. It was just absurd, but that was the rule. But you do have people who have other jobs who are now facing danger in various ways, such as quartermasters, truckers, engineers, that kind of thing, because you have airfields that are built, so you have aviation engineer units and and whatnot. So what's interesting, if you look at like some of the pre-invasion photographs, you'll notice you know, like as they're loading ships or you see these columns of soldiers uh, loading aboard landing craft or whatever, you'll notice white soldiers going aboard ships sometimes with black soldiers alongside or even black sailors alongside, many of whom are, are quartermasters whose job is to, to provide them with equipment and sometimes to go over with them, but not necessarily to assault the beach. Did the German army know that invasion was coming and how many German soldiers were at the beach? The Germans know an invasion is imminent, of course, by early June 1944. You know, the big questions of when and where, they don't necessarily know for sure. I mean, you, you've got a lot of them who are like, yeah, I think it's at Normandy. And others are like, oh, I think it's at Pas de Calais or whatever. Hitler predicts both in the, <laughs> in the course of the, the weeks leading up to D-Day. I think it's fair to say that on the eve of D-Day, they don't know that the invasion is coming the next morning. At least they don't know well enough. And the, the evidence of that is that they had um, they had stood down some of their defenses because the soldiers had endured a lot of alerts and they were tired and they were irritable and you had the cry wolf syndrome and all that. And so you had other senior leaders who had left Normandy to go um, for a, a, a war planning conference in, in a place called Rennes, a city called Rennes, which is far away from the invasion beaches. Rommel himself, of course, is on the way home to celebrate his wife's birthday. June 6th happened to be her birthday. And he wanted to go on and, and uh, talk to Hitler as well. Uh, so that's more evidence. And one of the reasons they don't know is they don't have as good a weather data as the Allies. The Allies had started to win the Battle of the Atlantic, so they had weather stations in the Atlantic, they had a better and clearer picture that you could invade on June 6th. The Germans didn't really think so. So by that time, um, most of the Germans don't necessarily know what's coming. How many of them are at Omaha Beach? What do they have? They really don't have that many guys at Omaha Beach, fortunately. I calculated in the Big Red One sector, they've got maybe about 600 or so. They have more than that in the 29th Division sector, but really, you're not talking about more than about a you know, 1,100, 1,200 guys. Now they can move people toward the beach in the course of the day, and they do, you know, so that adds to it, but they, they just don't have all that many right there in the defenses. And were there any correspondents or photographers that landed with the soldiers? 
Yeah, this is really the, one of the sad aspects of D-Day at Omaha Beach, at least. There are some correspondents, but there are none who land exactly with the first wave. Um, one of the people who many historians had thought landed with the first wave for decades is a guy named Robert Kappa, who was a famous war correspondent at the time and, uh, and an incredible photographer and whatever else. And so he will sort of portray, I don't think out of deception, but almost out of ignorance in a way that, that he's there with some of the first soldiers, but there's no way this could have been. When you look at the ship he came from, the unit he was with, and the perspective on the pictures that survived, as you probably know, he took dozens of pictures, but um, many of them were destroyed when they weren't developed correctly in a, in a dark room in London. Only about a dozen of the incredible images survive. And you notice the perspective when you're, you're looking towards Omaha Beach, and you'll notice there's already lots of guys ashore, and there's already tanks ashore and all this kind of stuff that couldn't have been the case if he's right there with the first wave. So that's about what we have. The other sad thing, the airborne, we don't have much of anything for the initial jump or any of that kind of stuff. It's all tends to be follow-on stuff, and I always think that's really ironic. From, it was the most heavily anticipated story you could cover as a journalist certainly in generations, maybe ever, and yet there's hardly anybody really there on site going in with the first waves. There are people in the course of the day at the various beaches, you know, who are reporting, but nowhere near the kind of immediacy that you would have hoped they would have for this kind of event. And the other thing too, documentary footage, there's not much of it. And it's ironic because the, the allies, the Americans especially, uh, the Signal Corps had all sorts of combat photographers and all that. I mean, it's incredible what they did in World War II, but there's not a lot at Omaha Beach, believe it or not. And the final listener question is, how did medics and doctors go about dealing with the casualties at Omaha Beach? Mm, yeah, that's one of the many tragedies of Omaha Beach. There's a lot of medics there. There's medical battalions. There's, of course, the, your organic medics that you have and the divisions that go in. You've got medics, as I mentioned, that are attached to units that have other specialties like engineers or ordnance or whatever. They're doing a lot of first aid in the course of the day. But one of the great oversights, just in my opinion, of the, the um, Omaha Beach landing and battle plan is not enough landing craft and shipping earmarked to evacuate wounded men. The priority goes for just landing as much stuff as possible, especially vehicles, many of which just become targets and make Omaha Beach deadlier in the course of the day because they're blown up on the beach and they're sending flames out and, you know, expended ordnance and all this kind of stuff. So very, very often, way too often in the course of D-Day, you'll have a medic, a combat medic or a doctor or something like that who will, who will stabilize a guy and then want to, you know, he knows he's got to get him evacuated to better medical care. And he gets him to a landing craft and the coxswains are like, no, we, we can't take him. And they'll often ascribe it, I think, unfairly to cowardice or slovenliness or whatever. No, it's because those coxswains have been told, land things quickly, move around, go get more stuff. It's all on a precise schedule. Don't deviate from that at all. And so, unfortunately, hundreds upon hundreds of wounded men end up staying there in the Omaha Beach area when they really needed better medical care. And we'll never know how many lives were lost because of that, because they couldn't get out until the next day or two later or whatever it would be. So if you're a medic on D-Day at Omaha Beach, you're probably in for a really frustrating experience and a tragic experience. And to ask some final concluding questions, what do you think the legacy of the battle at Omaha Beach is? You know, it's really interesting because 
aren't there many days we can point to in history that like so dramatic that have such an impact on future course of history. And I think that the, the legacy is this is one of those unique times when you have one day that helps determine the future course of history, not necessarily just because of what happened on that day. I mean, all that really happens is the Allies get into France. You know, they get a foothold into France. If nothing ever developed beyond that, then D-Day would be useless, you know. So it's just the beginning. I often emphasize this is just the beginning of a nearly year-long campaign to liberate the rest of Europe or whatever you could of it. So D-Day is the harbinger for that. And of course, everything that flows from that in European history, American history, and world history starts on D-Day in that respect. You know, what does what is World War II going to mean for Europe? And what is World War II going to mean for America's relationship with Europe? How does this impact Asia in the Pacific too? All of that is interlocked on D-Day. Uh, and so you have this, this sort of incredible legacy. The other thing too, D-Day begins, in my view, figuratively, the beginning of an alliance that you could argue is the most successful in human history, what becomes the NATO alliance. Uh, You know, I mean, you already have many of the same principles in place, in a way, under American leadership. So it's a seminal moment from from an American point of view, Uh, something that would have been unthinkable like four or five years earlier to Americans. You know, the U.S. committing itself to defending Europe, much less liberating it or whatever. All of that really begins on D-Day because it could not have happened without this international effort. It highlights something that has marked American history ever since. I mean, if you really step back and think about this, the last war we've ever fought without any allies was the Spanish-American War. Alliances are pretty important in modern American history. I think D-Day is like your prime A number one example of that. And my final question is, overall, how do you think the Second World War should be remembered in the United States? I think the Second World War is the seminal moment in American history. I think it is the most important event in American history. I know that's a big statement, but the way I see it as a Second World War historian, beyond the military side, beyond the geopolitical side, the international side, a completely different superpower America and all that, if we're looking at domestic issues, World War II is so pivotal because of the way the economy changes, this prodigious economy that comes out of World War II that still reverberates with us 80 plus years later, social aspects of it. Race is the prime example. The Civil War did not solve the issue of race. It solved the issue of slavery and union. World War II, I just mentioned earlier, you're fighting with a segregated force, which brings into question all the corrosiveness and toxicity of Jim Crow racism in this country and all this. So it's no accident that you have a massive civil rights movement come out of World War II because of the experiences during the war. And certainly the Holocaust is a player in this too, but you'd already had the civil rights movement. It just wasn't as widespread or as influential. You study, like, for instance, the 1948 election and see how segregation issues and civil rights affects that election. It's just, it's just remarkable. Uh, and it's something, I think, all these decades later, I think it's very obvious that the, the questions still aren't done or answered or whatever. And, and it's World War II that really wakes that up because Reconstruction after the Civil War had been such a major failure, ultimately, uh, unfortunately. So it's World War II when you see a lot of this revisited. And it's because of the war. And I think absent the war, you know, who knows? Gender. 
World War II leads to significant gender change in this country, too, because of the women involved in the war effort, not just at home, but in uniform. It's the beginnings of gender integration in the American armed forces, too. Regionalism, too, beyond that, uh, the rise of the Sun Belt, California, Florida, Arizona, also the Pacific Northwest. It's really the beginnings of this kind of modern America with the same kind of social problems and issues or whatever that are driven by much of the war. You also have, too, the question of what does citizenship mean? You know, how much can I ask of you as a citizen? Uh, I mean, you have, before World War II, the first ever peacetime draft in American history. There had only been two previous drafts in the history of this country, World War I and the Civil War. Neither were particularly popular, you know. And so you end up with this kind of new concept of citizenship of what is owed to the country, particularly by young men, that survives through the end of the Vietnam era, you know, in terms of a draft, but I think still is under question today is, you know, what you are obligated to do for your country or not or whatever. So all that, I think a lot of that can be traced to World War II, in my view. So we just had an interview with Dr. McManus. I hope you enjoyed it. I know that I did. I always enjoy doing the Second World War again because I think there's such a wide variety of material and topics to cover that, you know, you could probably dedicate an entire podcast to the Second World War. There's always there's such a wide range of experts and people that have historical knowledge. I mean, I've always personally been interested in the military history, but I think Dr. McManus raised interesting points about how it changed the United States in particular. It changed its socioeconomics very a lot. You know, women worked in the factories, people were able to get more money, and there was a new middle class. There was the GI Bill that allowed many service members to go to college for free, all these sorts of things. So as he kind of states, and I think in terms of U.S. history, the Second World War is probably, I would say, a three-way time between the Civil War and the revolution in terms of significant effects on the United States. I mean, it pretty much created the United States, founded as a global superpower, really. And that hasn't really changed for the last 70 years. I mean, probably changing now, but just in terms of looking at Omaha Beach as sort of just and the wider conflict, you know, a rather small event, but I think it's always remembered as a specific event for, you know, a generation of Americans that had to save the world, really. And not to take away from any other Allied contribution, I think obviously British and Canadians landed on that day, Polish uh, served, uh, New Zealanders, Indian, even Brazilians, I think, served in the Italian front in late 1944, 45. So, Again, with the Second World War, there's all these individual events and stories and individual soldiers in these conflicts, and trying to both zoom in and out is one of those interesting challenges. But And being able to cover this specific event, I really enjoyed. So other than that, I hope you enjoyed the episode and interview, as always. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end, and thank you for listening all the way through. 
As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again. 